If you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Ruth chapter 2? Ruth chapter 2. We're going to pick up right where we left off last week. We'll start with verse 5 this week, and we'll read all the way to the end of the chapter. If you're unable to stand for the full duration, that's totally understandable. Ruth chapter 2, beginning in verse 5. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants." And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain and she ate until she was satisfied and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves and do not reproach her. And also pull out some from the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city, and her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest. And she lived with her mother-in-law. Let's pray to the Lord together. Heavenly Father, Your word is wonderful. It is life-giving. It is hope-giving. It is salvation-offering. It is filled with Jesus. It is wonderful. Lord, the only limitation on your word is the fallenness of our own minds. It is the lack of spiritual eyes to be able to see. 
And so God, my prayer this morning is that you would open up my eyes wider than they've ever been. I I pray that you would open the eyes of my people so that they can see your word in all of its multidimensional glory and beauty. Lord, leave us today more convinced of the goodness of Jesus and more sold out to the mission of Jesus. We ask these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So last week where we picked up is at the end of chapter 1, we said there are really two big questions that every believer faces when they are suffering and enduring hard seasons in their life. And those questions are essentially, is God really strong enough and is God really good enough? And what we said is that in chapter 2, that those questions are both answered in single words. That there's two words that are given to us in chapter 2 that answer both of those questions. That God is both in control and that God is good. And so last week we saw that first word. And this week I want us to look at that second question. Is God really good enough? Because, you know, as we begin to look at the hardship and the horrible things that we're experiencing in our world, the question of God's goodness comes to the forefront, doesn't it? This is one of those images that I guess I'll remember forever. Uh, The the picture of those people trying to get on that airplane as it's taken off and people falling off the airplane as it ascends up because they're so desperate and filled with, with hopelessness if they're left behind is one of those that's hard to shake. And one of the questions that I've had as I've thought about this is I wonder how many of these are my brothers and sisters. I wonder if any of these are my brothers and sisters, just as much a family to me as any of you are. Jesus says that those who do the will of the Father are his brothers and his sister and his mother. This means this is our family. So you look at that and you put that in context. You think, Lord, if some of these are your people, and you are good, why are they experiencing something that is so bad? Why are they experiencing something that is so devastating? When you read the reports of of pastors saying that they're going to hold down the fort and they're going to be there until they're executed, you think, oh God, if you are good and you are mighty and you are who we believe you are, how can it be? In fact, you've probably experienced this in your life personally before, haven't you? You loved Jesus, you followed Jesus, you'd given your life to Jesus, and then a divorce blindsided you. Then a miscarriage blindsided you. The loss of a job blindsided you. Perhaps it was a combination of these things that all happened at one time when you go through one of those seasons in which hardship after hardship accumulates on you and you're buried and suffocating and you ultimately ask, God, I love you. And if you are so good and I love you, how is it that I'm experiencing so much bad? Well, this is a fundamental question that all of us will have to wrestle with at some point or another, but it's one that the Bible addresses. It's one that the Bible goes right after. 
As we've seen, Naomi and Ruth have experienced incredible hardship in their life. One of those accumulation, Job-like stories, where it's one, seri- one, one uh, information of bad news after being informed about bad news and then being informed about bad news yet again. And these things are starting to accumulate. And you sit there and you wonder, if you are Yahweh, if you are the covenant God, how can it be? But what we learn as we ch- switch the page from chapter 1 to chapter 2 is that God is at work. That God's goodness begins to shine through, but God's goodness shines through in Ruth in a way that perhaps we're not accustomed to. It's not shining through in Ruth like it does in the Exodus when the, when the bread falls from the sky and the water pours out of the rock and the sea is parted. Now in the book of Ruth, it comes the goodness of God to us in ordinary forms, in ordinary means. Those that if, if we're not looking for it, we can miss it. And y'all, it's the same in our lives. It's the same in our world. That the goodness of God is coming to us in ordinary forms and by ordinary means. And if we don't have the eyes to see, if if the Spirit is not opening those eyes and we're not looking intently for the goodness of God around us, it can be easy for us to miss. And so what I want you to see is that there is a single word that comes up in chapter 2. In fact, it was in chapter 1, and it'll be again in chapter 3. And it forms a thread that goes throughout the book of Ruth that enables us to see a primary theme for what we're supposed to get in Ruth. And anchored to that is the main takeaway that I want you to get this morning, and it is that God loves his people through his people. God loves his people typically, usually, most normally through his people. The word, and and I know some of you are like Hebrew scholars, and I'm going to butcher this because there's supposed to be like a CH on the beginning of the pronunciation. I can't do all that with my southern accent. Um, But the the word that I want to point out to you, if you'll look there in verse 20, it says, And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed, he is Boaz, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken us. The word kindness there in Hebrew is the word hased, hased. Now we saw this word again, as I mentioned, back in chapter 1 in verse 8. But Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, go, return each of you to her mother's house. And then she prays on their behalf. May the Lord deal kindly, this is the same word, May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The word has said is the word for covenant love, covenant loyalty, covenant devotion in the Old Testament. If you're familiar in the New Testament how there's those three Greek words for love and the greatest of those Greek words is the word agape love and how it's an unconditional love. It's a, an unrestrained love. It's an, an exorbitant, abundant love. Well, hesed would be the Hebrew Old Testament counterpart to that New Testament agape love. But it's really difficult for us to translate the word has said, and that's the only reason I'm, using, I'm attempting to use the Hebrew word here, is it's very difficult for us to translate the Hebrew word has said into an English word. In fact, throughout your Bibles, throughout the Old Testament, there's a variety of words that are used to show, to be translated as has said, because has said represents a multi-dimensional component to the covenant relationship between God and his people. It has to do with God's relationship to his people primarily, but then also it's how God's people are to respond 
to him. And so here it's translated as kindness. If you have a KJV, it may be translated as loving kindness. Loving kindness is the word that's, that's used most often. And it's really that combination of two words. So even there, you can see the multidimensional nature of said. Sometimes it's mercy, it's grace, it's, it's loyalty. It encompasses all of these things, but more than these things. So it's love, but it's more than love. It's kindness, but it's more than kindness. It's mercy, but it's more than mercy. It's loyalty, but it's more than loyalty. And, it, and it's not something that's in the abstract. It's not something that you, you talk about, but you can't touch and feel and experience. That what has said represents is it represents the very goodness of God, the character of God, the kindness of God coming into your life in a way in which you're actually able to experience it, to know it to see it, to to hold it in your hands. It's the kindness of God interrupting the hardship of your life so that you can actually know that he's there. Now here's what I think is so cool. And this is why I'm pointing it out in chapter two and not in chapter three. Chapter one, when we see it, what's happening? Naomi is praying. She's praying for Orpah and for Ruth. We're going to see it mostly played out in the life of Ruth. And what she says is, you have dealt. So she's saying, Ruth, you've already been loving my, my son this way before he died. You've loved me this way since he's died. And so what I'm praying, Ruth, is that you would experience God's kindness to you the way that you have shown it to us. That you would experience an abundance of love, an abundance of kindness, exorbitant, passionate, zealous consideration from Almighty God. And this is where he gets good. Verse 20 in chapter 2, after all of this hardship comes to it, and it says what? May he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. So you get to the end of chapter 2, verse 20, and she's saying, my prayer has been answered for you. My prayer has been answered. I have prayed that God would show you this said love that you would experience tangibly in your life, the knowledge of God's love, a way that you could point and testify and say, look at how good God is. And by the end of the second chapter, Naomi is able to say, God has heard my prayer. God has heard my prayer. I wonder how many of you could testify that way this morning. I know you could, because I know you. I know that I could go row by row, chair by chair, and each one of you could say, there was a time in my life when I prayed in desperation, oh God, I need your goodness. God, I need a glimpse of your goodness. I need an experience with your kindness. I need the interruption of your compassion in my life. And now, on the other side, in chapter two, chapter one, hard as it was, you turn the page and you look back and think, oh, oh, let me tell you how good God is. Let me tell you how good God is. But here's what's interesting. What happened in between those two usages of the word? What happened between prayer prayed and prayer answered? Probably not what you expect. You're expecting, if you're, if you're familiar with the story of Exodus, you're familiar with the story of Joshua and the walls of Jericho crumbling down and the sun standing still. You're probably expecting that, that if the prayer has been answered by chapter 2, that God has intervened in a miraculous way. But no bread has fallen from the sky. No walls have come crashing down. Do you know what's happened? 
she's met a faithful man of God who loved God and loved her. That's what's happened. Something remarkably ordinary, something remarkably plain that God is getting the credit for, that God is getting the glory for. Remember how we said, God is so big, he doesn't have to work through the miraculous. God is so big and so sovereign and so in control of all things that he can work through every ordinary, every ordinary circumstance and means in our own lives. That he is in it all. He is in all the minutiae and, and, and uh, mundaneness of life. And so what's happened is that an ordinary man has living a faithful life and God works through that ordinary man to answer the prayers of his people. You see, God is most often pleased to answer the prayers of his people by the obedience of his people. That the obedience in your life is God working through you to answer the prayers of someone else's life. That God is, has little boys and little girls and mamas and daddies praying in this congregation. And he has put you in the chair on the row beside them so that he can work through you, that they can experience his goodness through you. See, this, that, that's what's really cool here is the way that you see this. So in chapter 1, you have, as I've pointed out, you have uh, Ruth is showing this kind of kindness and love to Naomi. But Naomi recognizes it as God. You have in chapter 2, you have Boaz showing this kind of kindness to Ruth. And Naomi recognizes it as God. And so what we're being presented here is that both Ruth and Boaz see themselves as agents of God's grace. Agents of God's goodness. And I'm here to tell you that has always been the position for God's people. That from Genesis chapter 12, when he made the covenant with Abraham, he has said that through you, through this nation, we are going to bless every nation. That my goodness is going to channel through you to reach to my people so that all of them can have an experience and a testimony for how great I really am. For how loving I really am. For how kind I really am. And so what we see in chapter 1 is a glimpse of Ruth demonstrating the Hesed love of God. And what we have in chapter 2 is we have Boaz showing as an exemplar of the Hesed love, kindness, mercy, grace of God. And what I want us to do is I want us to, to take now and unpack that and how that, that picture comes to bear in chapter 2. And that helps us to really see the multidimensional nature of this Hesed love so that we can look at it from a few different angles. And by looking at it from a few different angles, what we're seeing is how we can experience God's love and how we can be a part of perpetuating the experience of others so that they can experience God's love. So the first thing that I want you to see under that is that God that Hased is protecting the, defen the defenseless. Hased is protecting the defenseless. It says there, uh, Boaz is talking to Ruth. And remember, Ruth kind of just happens into his field and, and it's kind of unsuspecting. And we all know that it didn't just happen, that, that she ended up there because of, of God's divine hand. And he's been organizing and orchestrating all of these things so that she's at the right place with the, at the right time with the right people. But here she is, and still from her perspective, in that split screen that we talked about last week, all of this is just happening. And so Boaz begins to say, he says, look, my daughter, do not go glean in another field or leave this one. 
but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? I want you to keep that in your mind. And when you're thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. So, so he, here Boaz recognizes three needs that she has immediately. And essentially, Ruth is incapable of meeting those three needs on her own. First of all, she needs food. She's there to glean. She's there to scavenge. She needs something to eat. Second of all, she needs some water to drink. She needs water for her, for Naomi, especially if she's going to work out in the field. And so she's not able to provide those things for herself. She's a foreigner. She's, she's a widow. She's, she's barren. She doesn't have anyone that can provide and, and do these things for her. And thirdly, she needs protection, that she's vulnerable, that she's viewed even by Boaz as being one that the men may take advantage of. You see, what you have to understand about Ruth is Ruth is one of those people that would have been easily forgotten. Ruth is one of those people that, that, that she could go missing and seemingly nobody would actually miss her. She's one of those people that, that she could be getting abused and, and nobody would even, would even acknowledge it. They would all go to the other side of the sidewalk and keep on living. She was a despised race. She was an outcast to society. She was the representative of everything that was wrong in the eyes of Israel. She was the kind of woman that could be raped and no one would believe her. No one would defend her. No one would protect her. Not only that, this was her heritage. This was her heritage. You cannot miss this. You have to understand, a Hebrew reading this is making these connections in their minds. And my goodness, I wish y'all would give me another hour so we could just put all this together real quick, okay? It would be a lot of fun. But I'm going to make this case really quick. Okay, Genesis 19, you remember what happens? The angels of the Lord come into Sodom and they're gonna, and Abraham has sent there and answered this prayer. They're looking for faithful men in Sodom and they're gonna they're, you know, rescue Lot and they go into Lot's house and the, the men of Sodom come and they want, to, they want to molest these men and abuse these men. And what does Lot do? Lot says, I have, these, I have these daughters. You can have them. How about you just have them? Leave these angels alone. And Lot turns his own daughters over to be abused by the perversion of that town, right? And what does it say at the end of Genesis chapter 19? That one of Lot's daughters ends up getting him drunk and sleeping with him. And that the Moabites, and what's Ruth? A Moabite. The Moabites are the result of this incestuous relationship between Lot and his daughter. Let's keep going. Let's keep going. Do you remember when we were in Judges 19 through 21? I had some of y'all, so many of y'all write, sending me messages like, I I was praying for you because that was a hard passage. That was tough stuff. But you remember what happened and how we said it paralleled uh, Genesis chapter 19 and that story about Lot. And you have the Levite man with his concubine and he ends up in the house of the Ephraimite and the people of the town come and they begin to pound on his doors. And again, they want to molest the man. And the Ephraimite says, what? Well, I have this virgin daughter and I have this man's concubine. Why don't you just have them? And the men of the town end up abusing and molesting the concubine until she ends up dead. See, you get a glimpse of the heritage in Genesis 19 of, of Ruth, 
And you get a glimpse of the culture of, for Boaz there in Judges because this is taking place in the times of the Judges. But what we see in this statement by Boaz is that Boaz is at one and the same time contradicting Ruth's heritage and confronting and countering his own culture. See, people read passages like Judges 19 through 21, uh, Genesis 19, and they think, how in the world could the Bible sanction things like that? How could the Bible sanction something so awful, the mistreatment of women? And I'm here to tell you that the Bible does not sanction it at all. Rest your mind. The Bible is describing in Judges 19 through 21 the moral decay of his people. What happens when sinners do what is right in their own eyes and the ends of their own wickedness and the logical extrapolation of where it's going to head. Boaz, Boaz stands up as a confrontation to such nonsense as that and says this is the goodness of God this is the nature of God this is the character of God the character of God is not to harm women the character of God is not to objectify women and victimize women and exclude women it is to elevate them and to love them and to defend them and to protect them here is Boaz manifesting as an agent of grace, how good God is to a woman who had no entitlement to it. Is that not a picture of Jesus? Oh my goodness, y'all. Do you know what Jesus did? Jesus came here and I, I was the one that could be forgotten. I was the one that should be excluded. I was the one that should be reviled. I was the one that should not be trusted. I was the one that was owed the justice and wrath of Almighty God and I was defenseless but God but Jesus stepped in between and absorbed that wrath on my behalf. Don't you wonder who's praying? Naomi, th- this is the, pr- the answer to Naomi's prayer for Ruth but it makes me wonder who's praying today. It makes me wonder about There in Afghanistan, they say that if a a young teenage girl converts to Christianity, that what is frequently the case, especially under Taliban rule, is that they will then send them off to a foreign uh, community to be married to a Muslim man that they have never met to try to detox them out of this Christian faith. I wonder if there is a teenage sister on the other side of the world and she's praying. She's praying for freedom. She's praying for liberty. She's praying that someone would intervene and she is defenseless to do a single thing about it. I wonder if there are abused girls right now that go home to a dad that's going to molest them every night. And I wonder if in the the darkness of that room and in in the pain of that night, if they're praying, oh God, send somebody, send somebody. I wonder if there's a mom that's going home every day to be berated and beaten down. If she's praying, our sister in the Lord praying. And I wonder, I wonder if it's us that's supposed to stand up. If it's us that's supposed to stand up. Let me tell you, man of God, we will stand up for our sisters. We will stand up for our sisters. 
we will stand as the vanguard of justice on their behalf because that is the nature of our God. That is the goodness of our God. We will stand with the abused and we will stand with the maligned and we will stand with those that have been mistreated and forgotten and are on the periphery of society because that is who our God is. And God is going to answer those prayers. And he's going to answer those prayers by putting you on the assembly line right beside her. He's going to answer those prayers by putting her in the house right beside yours. It is not ordinary. It is not accidental. Your job is not dead end. It is sovereignly laid out by Almighty God that through you, His goodness might be channeled. So I wonder who's praying. I wonder how God's going to answer. That's a said. That's a said. Protecting the defenseless. Secondly, I want you to see that it's to dignify the discarded. To dignify the discarded. So this is especially cool, I think, in my opinion, to, to really lay out the point that I'm, I'm trying to drive home, that God loves his people through his people. Look at what it says in verse 12. This is Boaz talking. He says, the Lord repay you, that's, uh, that's Ruth, for what you have done. A full reward be given you by the Lord. By whom? By the Lord, the God of Israel, this double statement by Yahweh, the covenant name. And then he, he drives it home again, the, the God, the, the sovereign, the almighty, the, the majestic Lord of the nation of Israel. This is talking to a non-Israelite, remember, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. So she's coming, she's looking for God to provide for her. And then look at what he says. He says in verse 14, skip down, and at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here. Eat some bread. Dip your morsel in the wine. Y'all, y'all just better get ready right here. All right. He says, God show his goodness to you. May God show his goodness to you. May God repay you for all of the goodness that you have shown to Naomi and to her sons. May, may, may God's goodness break out in your life. May you receive the fullness of the reward from the very hand of God himself. And you're going to experience it? At my table. At my table. So do you hear what he's, there's, there's a juxtaposition that happens right there. You're going to know the goodness of God, and I'm going to take responsibility personally to make sure you experience it. I'm going to make sure you see the, the, the goodness of God. I'm going to make sure you eat at the Lord's table. I'm going to make sure that you experience the Lord's abundance. I'm going to make sure I am going to be there to answer this prayer so that I can be a part of the Lord repaying your kindness and rewarding your goodness. I am going to make sure that you do it. That is, Boaz sees himself as a diplomat of grace, a diplomat of the character of God. One who goes forth on God's behalf doing God's work. Y'all, if I don't know a picture of the church, that's it. That's it. That's who we're supposed to be. That's in the charge to go there for and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them all that I have commanded you. That's, in the, that, that's, the, that's it. To be salt and light in the midst of a dark and decaying generation. That's it. So here you have this woman who should be totally discarded, totally disregarded, totally ignored. And what does he say? Come to my table. 
you're not going to scavenge in my house. You see this? You're not going to get leftovers in my house because I know the Lord and the Lord loves you. Ruth was a nobody. Boaz was a somebody. Boaz was affluent. Boaz was influential. Boaz had a big table and a sprawling farm. He had all of these things, and Ruth had nothing. She was a beggar, and yet what did he do? He took a nobody and made her and elevated her into a somebody. Does that sound like Jesus? The one whose kingdom, the first shall be last, and the last shall be first. I love what he says there in verse 8. If I just go back for a second, he says, Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter. Now listen, my daughter. You know what that reminds me of? It reminds me of the woman with the issue of blood who comes to Jesus and she's an outcast and she can't even be touched because she's a contaminant to the purity of Israel. And she reaches out and she grabs hold of Jesus and the expectation is by anyone reading that, when she takes hold of a Jewish man, that she is one that's going to be rebuked, that he's going to be repulsed that she's touched him. What does he do? He looks down and he says, Take courage, my daughter. Your faith has made you well. I think about Zacchaeus. Luke chapter 19, he climbs up in the tree and he is a reviled man, a hated man, a despised man. A man nobody else wants to hang out with. He's robbed his own people. And Jesus says, come on down. I'm eating at your house tonight. I'm gonna hang out with you, my son. See, that's what Jesus does. That's the nature of God's kingdom, to take the outcast and to lift them up. Because we are diplomats of the grace of Almighty God. Through us, the goodness of God is being channeled. We have experienced the goodness of God in our salvation, but my goodness, people that tell you it doesn't matter what you do after that point don't understand the goodness of God. Because the the goodness of God doesn't just come to you, the goodness of God channels through you. See, Naomi asked and prayed that the Lord would bless her daughter-in-law. And how did the Lord bless her daughter-in-law? How did he elevate her and lift her up? Through a faithful man. I wonder who's forgotten that's praying today. I wonder who's forgotten. I, I thought as I was writing this, I thought about the time I was in South Africa and we were there, and this, these two little boys, I was telling my D group about this this past week, these two little boys come up, and they're just wearing rags, man. I mean rags. And they ask for bread and milk. And I'm telling you, when two little boys wearing rags ask you for bread and milk, you give them bread and milk, right? And I remember handing that, and the guy that I was with, Steve Mann, if you guys, many of you know him, he, he said, come here, I want you to see what's fixing to happen. And we stepped right outside, and outside there was a, a semi-truck and uh, I can't remember if the trailer and the, tra- the tractor and the trailer were there, but the trailer was there. And those little boys, I saw them run. And they're holding the, the milk and the bread, and they're running as fast as they can. And then they're chased down by somebody that's standing beside that. And he goes and he tackles them to the ground, a, a much bigger kid, maybe, maybe even in his early 20s. And he takes him and he brings him back over. And behind that trailer was a row of, of young boys and girls that had their arms behind their back, standing shoulder to shoulder. I think, John, I think you were there with us when that happened. And he said, you see that? They're sending them in there as bait because that is a trafficking, a human trafficking operation. 
And all of those people are lined up there against their will with no hope of escape. He said, and according to the government, 100% HIV positivity rate. And I just thought this week as I was writing this, I wonder if one of them knows Jesus and is praying and crying out, oh God, how can I get out of this? How can I break free? How can I realize the fullness of what it means to be an image bearer? How can I know the goodness of the joy that you have promised and the peace that surpasses all understanding? God, would you show me? I thought about Jeffrey, what he told Andrew just last week, as all this stuff. He's obviously heartbroken about what's happening in Afghanistan, but this is what he said. He said, here we are in Eswatini, and everybody forgets about us because we can't give anything to anyone. We're not news. Nobody cares. And our people are being killed every day, and we're being discarded every day, and nobody even cares. Everybody has forgotten about us. And I wonder how many brothers and sisters are over there, and they're praying, oh God, that we could know your goodness. Oh God, that we could see revival in our land. Oh God, that we could be delivered from this oppression. And then I wonder, I wonder, I wonder how many in our community, how many single mamas come home from their second job to a house that has to be cleaned anyway, lunches that have to be made. And I wonder how many of them come home and think, does nobody even see me? Does no one even see me? Does no one even know that I exist? How can I keep my head above water? How can I balance out my budget another week? How can I do it? How is the Lord going to answer their prayers, church? He's going to answer it through us. Through us. We are agents of the goodness of God. We are diplomats of the grace of God. We cannot stay in our padded chairs and air-conditioned sanctuary and not impact the world around us. We cannot do it. The forgotten world is not forgotten by the God that knows the number of hairs that are on our heads. And he is raising up a generation here. And he is starting with us. With us. With us. That's a said. The forgotten are not forgotten. Finally, I want you to see that he blesses the destitute. He blesses the destitute. I think this is, this is almost like a comical uh, relief in the story. So it says there that she gleaned until evening, and then she beat out what she had gleaned. And so remember what gleaning is. Gleaning is I'm going and getting the leftovers off of the ground. Like I'm, just, I'm getting the scraps, right? And... It was about an ephah of barley. Now, if you'll remember, I can't remember if I've really highlighted it or not, but he, he basically was only responsible to leave the corners of his field so that the foreigners and sojourners should come by and get it. But, but uh, Boaz basically tells all of his workers, I want you to throw it on the ground. Like, just, just throw all the grain on the ground and don't you pick anything up. And, and so th- the picture here is that Boaz is giving to Ruth out of great expense to himself. And so Ruth is going, and she and Naomi is hoping that she's just going to scrape a little bit together, right? Ruth is just wanting to scrape by. But let me just throw a, a time out in here. Hased, hased is never in meager portions. Hased is always about abundance. It's always about more than enough. It's always about more than is expected. It's, it's excessive in its very nature. And so she's hoping for just a little bit. Like, like the expectation is that Ruth is going to come home like this, right? And it says that she receives an ephah. An ephah is basically 30 to 50 pounds. 
an ephah is what you would expect to get in about 15 days work. Best case scenario, if you're employed. So she's expecting, you have the picture here? She's, Naomi is expecting Ruth to come home walking like this. Ruth comes home with, a, with an old Roy dog food bag thrown over her shoulder. And so, and so Naomi goes, and you can hear the picture. She says, whose field did you glean in today? Like, how did that happen, right? This obviously is favor from the Lord. And that's a picture of what it looks like to love someone in the image of God, to be a conduit of the goodness of God. When they come to us expecting a handful, we give them a sackful. When, when, when they come to us expecting our scraps, we feed them from our own table. That is Christ. That is Christ who sacrifices of himself that we might have the one who laid down his life that we might have life. The one who hung on the cross that we might not experience the wrath and the justice of God, but that we may walk in the abundance of life and an eternal life forever. That is Christ. You realize we live in a world, y'all, where Jeffrey, the pastor that we partnered with in Swaziland about three months ago, he made it an entire 30-day month on $31, a dollar a day. And that's just as poor over there as you would think it is over here. Half the world lives on $2 a day. Half the world. 16, 15 to 16,000 children die every day of malnutrition and starvation-related deaths. Every day. And I wonder how many hungry people are praying. I wonder, I wonder how many of the people that, the kids that come into your classroom and they don't have food over the weekend, I wonder how many of them are praying. I wonder how many people that we drive by every day in neighborhoods that are easy for us to overlook, I wonder how many of them are praying, oh God, would you intervene? Oh God, would you give us something to eat? Oh God, would you provide? And how is God going to answer their prayer? How are they going to experience the love of God? They're going to experience it through us, through our generosity, through our willingness to give above and beyond for our willingness to, to set Chick-fil-A down a couple times a week, that they might have bread on their table, for us to have eyes to see and a heart to feel and to be filled with compassion and, and empathy for people that, that are otherwise forgotten and discarded. We are ambassadors, diplomats of grace. Church, I wonder, in the locker that's beside you, to the person that you eat with every day, to the people that ride in your carpool. I wonder who's praying. And I wonder who God's gonna use us to answer their prayer and to show them his goodness. Because that, that is his said, and that's his people. Let's pray the Lord together. Thank you for watching or listening to one of our sermons. We would love to have the opportunity to connect with you one-on-one. -on -one. We are not a perfect church, but we are a joyful church, and we want to help you increase your joy in Christ. We would love for you to come and worship with us one day soon. You'll be able to find information about our worship services, about who we are, what we believe, what we do, and what we're hoping to accomplish on our website at ironcity.org. 
and we would invite you to go and to check out all the information there. We look forward to seeing you soon.